Orcas and salmon are friends that need help. Our ocean pals are facing some trouble. Less trouble, more bubbles. There's so much we can do. Do you know what I'm thinking? Let's start preaching extinction. Hello, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. For those of you that are new here, the Breaching Extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them. There are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left, and they are currently threatened by lack of prey, vessel noise, and water toxins. All these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea. However, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Wirth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives. I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Breaching Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast. I hope you guys all had a wonderful week. This week, I'm here with Sasha Vikara. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Just uh, trying to stay dry in these like chaotic rains that we have here in California right now. So, yes. Um, So tell us about yourself. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? How'd you get into this field? That's a funny story. I grew up in Germany, um, Mm -hmm. far away from the seaside, basically in the center of Germany. Never had much to do with the ocean or anything. And I started studying biology. I tried to get into marine biology, but I just didn't have the, the grades to to get into it and I started biology started um, working on ecology and uh, actually nature conservation Mm -hmm. I did my diploma thesis on uh, forest antelopes in uh, Africa the tropical rainforest okay and um, I had a blast of time down there it was beautiful it was so interesting I learned so many new methods and so many um, interesting uh, approaches on how to analyze populations, how to estimate populations. Tried to get into that field, but it was very hard. And after a long time, I got an offer to work with marine mammals as, uh, well, just to get a sneak preview into, like, what are they doing? What are they um, working on? They needed someone to fill in a vacancy. I started there, and I sort of slowly sl- slipped into this 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 field and um i found my niche somehow in in the monitoring program for harbor porpoises in germany so i became the lead of harbor porpoise monitoring in germany in 2016 mm-hmm. 
And from there, it went to Antarctica. It went to European surveys for um, cetaceans in general. So yeah, I'm sort of like, I'm sort of drifted into the field with with my background knowledge actually being like a regular biologist with uh, field expertise and uh, statistics. That's basically the, you know, the key that opened up a lot of doors to me. For sure. So what is your current title now? My current title is I'm a scientist actually at Alfred Wegener Institute in Bremerhaven, but I'm also affiliated as a guest with the University of Hamburg. Okay. And I'm currently full-time employed as a programmer for the International Bathymetric Chart of the Southern Ocean. So we just released uh, the new map of the seafloor of the Southern Ocean okay. this year. And um, funding is a bit difficult in Germany over the last uh, decade in particular. So I'm not currently being paid to be a biologist. Okay. I'm still working as a biologist because that's where my interests are and that's what I want to do. So I sort of have this agreement with my with my bosses um, that I can do both sort of side by side mm-hmm. and um, still keep pushing my academic career in, you know, cetacean research further, even though I'm working in the geophysics department at the moment. So for sure. Complicated. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I... Lack of funding is definitely a common theme in this industry. That's for sure. That's true. Yes. Okay. So we're here to talk about your paper, identifying seasonal distribution patterns of fin whales across the Scotia Sea and the Antarctic Peninsula region using a novel approach combining habitat sustainability models and um, assemble learning methods. Um, yeah, that's, apologies that's for novel. the title. Yes. So... Um, Tell us what that means. Like, what what is what question are you trying to answer? And um, tell us, you know, kind of just like an introduction of your study. So this study um, originated in the idea that there is no real knowledge or understanding of the distribution and the abundance of fin whales in the Southern Ocean. Mm-hmm. So we know a lot about humpback whales, for example. That's because it's been pushed by the IWC to study humpback whales and to start with humpback whales because they are like quite abundant. But for other species, um, it looks different. Like the fin whale has been the most targeted species during the commercial whaling period in the Southern Ocean. Mm-hmm. And um, there's still little knowledge on uh, how many there are actually left, how many survived, how many were there before. Apparently, there were a lot of uh, Southern Hemisphere fin whales before because like a lot of them were hunted, like 300,000 and more were hunted during the commercial whaling period. Mm-hmm. And um, they've been rare and they haven't been seen that frequently, even though... There's a caveat when I say something like that. It always means also the effort and the the attempts to see them were like few and in between. Mm -hmm. And this changed with the SOUR initiative, which started in the 1980s. That's the International Whaling Commission's International Decade of Cetacean Research and Southern Mm -hmm. Ocean Whale Ecosystem Research Cruise Programs. And they aimed at a circumpolar estimate of any cetacean species they could still find. Mm -hmm. And that ended sort of like in 2004, started in 1978. There were like mostly dedicated surveys for all cetaceans 
and um, yeah, it's a, it's a period of 26 years. And they published an estimate for fin whales, amongst other species, um, for the whole, you know, Southern Ocean, basically. Yeah. And that estimate uh, was somewhere in between 2,000 and 14,500 animals, mm-hmm. and the median is 5,400. So that's that's basically the background. That's the setting of, of our, our study area. So when we went there and um, in 2016, I was on a fishing vessel. I was part of sort of like a guest of the CAMELA survey. The CAMELA mm. survey is um, international monitoring program for krill in the Antarctic. Mm-hmm. Uh, amongst other things, they do all the living resources in Antarctica. But in, in, in my case, I was there because they did a krill survey and they invited me as a guest observer for cetaceans. Mm. And we went along the Western Antarctic Peninsula and... Um, at around Elephant Island, which is sort of like a, a very prominent island in that region, mm-hmm. we suddenly saw um, a great number of, of, of blows on the horizon. It was like, not like you would expect from maybe a handful of animals. It was like 20 animals, 30 animals all together blowing like, mm-hmm. like crazy. And there were, there were birds everywhere. There were seals everywhere. There have been observations before, like in 2013, my... Uh, my employer, she was on a cruise and they, they saw this, this wall of blows at the horizon, but they couldn't get there because the helicopter didn't have enough fuel and blah, blah, blah. So they had to go mm. back and there was never really a chance to actually see this and really study this, like have a look at this. And in 2016, when I was on this fishing vessel, we, we encountered two of those large aggregations. And the good thing was they basically passed us. Like we were stationary and they just passed us by like they swam towards us they swam past us and they kept feeding and feeding and feeding and it was a mixed group it was humpback whales it was fin whales Mm. so that was super interesting to see because that confirmed okay there might be like large aggregations of fin whales again because they've been known from historic records so that was the first indication of okay maybe there's something going on in that area and those aggregations hadn't been observed for a long time Mm -hmm. And so we also did a a, a dedicated population abundance survey in that area. And we found out, well, in that area around Elephant Island in the South Orkneys, there's somewhere between 1,000 and 3,000 animals, let's say, roughly, like ballpark estimate, which would mean that that's about like half the population of the circumpolar estimate from Mm -hmm. 2001. Uh, The paper was published in 2001 that postulated 5,400 animals. And um, so we thought like, I, that is weird. Like we've seen so many fin whales just mm-hmm. in that very small, that's just a small, tiny fraction of the whole Southern Ocean. And that's supposed to be more than half of it. That's weird. Like mm-hmm. what is happening? Um, so we went back there in 2018, uh, this time with a bigger ship, with, uh, with uh, camera drones, with a helicopter equipped with, you know, professional cameras that that um, mm-hmm. was uh, used by the BBC, who accompanied us filming for Seven Worlds. They brought a professional camera, professional drone operator. And this cruise was uh, the main, uh, the principal investigator was a krill um, investigator, was a big krill survey going on. And it was going through our area of interest. Mm. So we joined and we did our helicopter survey and um, 
we actually found a couple of aggregations, both via helicopter and from the ship. And then we actually encountered like a Finwell only group or multiple Finwell only groups with, it's very hard to judge, but up to 70 animals. Again, mm -hmm. like in 2006 and like has been like it has been reported previously. Um, so then there was a lot of initiative to actually, you know, approach like this 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 myth on on the finware. Is it like five thousand in total, or maybe it's just five thousand in that small area of the Western Antarctic Peninsula? So the next thing you naturally do is you ask everyone for for data. So we asked everyone in the community for finware data, like any records you could give us, like whether you were doing a tagging study, whether you were doing like whatever, a cruise ship maybe has seen a couple of finwells. The only thing we wanted was like position, which means geographic position and the date and maybe the group size. And if you are able to provide that, please indicate how certain you are that this was a finware. Because normally we work with dedicated data, which means line transit data, aerial service, ship service, and you have your dedicated setup, you have your protocol, you have your effort correction and stuff like that to, to get mm -hmm. to an abundance estimate. But with presence only, you just have the occurrence. So the range of results was very, or the range of analyses that we could run were very limited. And it's very hard to get from a presence record to an abundance estimate because you need somehow to relate that to an area you observed. Otherwise, you can tell, yeah, it's two animals, but related to which area? Like, sure. it's two animals somewhere. So we made this big call. Please, everyone in the community, in the IWC community, please send us your data. And we got data from a lot of people, institutions, we browse online data, uh, OBIS, GBIF, um, uh, Happy Whale played an important role. Happy Whale is, uh, you're probably familiar with that. Yeah. They gather all these crowdfunded resources, um, pictures taken from cruise vessels and everything. So they send us their whole catalog of fin whales, fin whale sightings, including the pictures, which was a great, great help because we could um, re-evaluate, is this really a fin whale or was this just misclassified and stuff like that? So we're... There went a lot of work into prep, preparing all this data from all those uh, contributors. And once we got that, it's basically just thinking about what, what are we going to do with the data? So mm -hmm. we had 2,428 records, like across 20, 30 years of, of, of observations mm -hmm. and 6,473 finwares in total. And wow. yeah, that's, that's a lot. Which, Technically, it seems a lot, but the funny part is most of the data were from 2000 or later. Yeah. And most of the data were just from January to March. So there's a lot of um, ground or a lot of time that we don't have any data for still. like, And you can't go back in time and just dig up some data for 1990, obviously. But um, even for that short period of time, you can see there's a lot of Finwell data around. And that's just the Western Antarctic Peninsula again. So we didn't yeah. do the circumpolar thing. Maybe there's even more. So we took all that data and we did the first reasonable thing that you do with presence data. You run species distribution models, mm -hmm. which don't give you an abundance, but they give you a probability of encountering animals at a certain location. So you can say, well, this area has a 90% uh, 
chance of encountering a fin whale in our case. And this one has a very low probability of encountering a fin whale. And um, we thought this is fine and this is interesting and this is good enough for the funding agency. Mm. But that was not our goal. That was not what we set out for. Mm. Uh, so we browsed the internet. We looked for methods. We looked for approaches. And this was back in 2019 because there has been some change mm. today. There's been new methods or new approaches. But back then there wasn't much. So we decided, well, why don't we look abroad our horizon of, you know, classic methods that we use, that we always use, oh, species distribution model, what do you do next? What do you do next? So we looked at uh, like modern computer science and mm, modern estimation methods using machine learning or, or mm -hmm. sort of like from that family of, of, of analysis tools. And we encountered this, this phenomenal new approach of random forest using generalized least squares. And the big benefit of that is, unlike other random forests, it doesn't classify, it doesn't need to tell you, oh, it's a juvenile, it's a, it's a male, it's something. It works with continuous data, such as our data, because we have the group size. So we could use it to model like actually the group size that we are expecting at a certain location. Mm -hmm. And the other big benefit is that it actually includes a spatial um, effect. So one, one area which has a lot of fin whales would probably yield to also quite a lot of animals in the other area, which is adjacent. So that's something that this package introduced or this method introduced. And we thought, well, that's nice. The only issue with this package is it doesn't control for like false results. Like it takes depth, it takes um, chlorophyll A, and then it makes a model, it makes a formula, and it tells you, well, there you have 50 animals. Mm. But from the species distribution model, we could take the information, how likely is that result? Because how likely is it actually that we see an animal there? It doesn't yeah. really depend only on, well, there's this depth and there's this temperature, then you have 10 fin whales. Otherwise, you would have fin whales all around the world, like even in swimming pools. Like, yeah. it's just a model. It's just yeah. dumb yeah. mathematics. Mm. But if you use two methods to basically do a sanity check on each other, you can um, threshold the other model, the mm -hmm. one that is more like, you know, hypothetical and more mm -hmm. out of the box. And you can just keep it in bounds and make a very conservative effort, uh, conservative estimate. Mm -hmm. And that's what we basically did. We tried to combine those two uh, approaches and um, see what we can learn from that, see what we can learn from this big data set um, across 30 years to see how how seasonality in our case like three months from january to march april to june july to till uh, september october and december which are sort of like the major turning points in the austral season seasons uh how how do fin whales move quote unquote mm -hmm. we don't know how they move because we aggregate over three months but we can see that the center of distribution shift across those seasons. And we can see where there's a lack of data, which is even more important mm. because you need to have a lot of data to identify the regions where you don't have data. Mm. And those were the main points of our paper, basically. Mm. Basically, the first time someone did that for Southern Hemisphere fin whales, even though in, in a very small region, it was done in a very small region, and most of the data is from the last 20 years, but with all those caveats, it's still a very valuable contribution because we can 
also identify where there is lack of data, where we need to in include more data and more knowledge, mm -hmm. but also to, to come up with numbers like population estimates for smaller areas that we deem uh, they've been covered correctly, they've been covered enough, we can we can lean, lean out and come out with a number for that area. Yeah. And it turns out our estimates from, from 2016, from 2018, from the years before, they were still there. They were still the same results. So it's still around 1,000 to 3,000 animals near or around Elephant Island, for example. And that's very interesting and it's very promising. It tells us uh, this is the third time that we get this number confirmed. Mm. So there must be some substance. To it. So it must be that there are a lot of fin whales around, mm -hmm. much more than we expected, mm -hmm. which leads to the conclusion of the paper, the next step. So how many are there in total? How many are there circumpolar? And that's, that's probably a much bigger task even than sure. this one. Definitely. Um, yeah, that sounds very complex. <laughs> There's a lot of elements that go into that. Um, and we don't know any, I feel like we know nothing about fin whales, like compared to other whales, like it's just nothing. Um, so are you like planning to answer that question next? Wow. Um, <coughs> that's a tough question. Um, it would be great, mm -hmm. but doing a circumpolar survey is near impossible. Yeah. It's like the weather situation is so bad. Um, you will never make it in one go. You will, would have to split it across different years. Mm -hmm. And then it's still just one year of mm -hmm. data or, or just one cruise. The best thing would be to have the same call going out to everyone yeah. around the world. But it's like, it's, it's a very difficult species to study, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And that's why we have much more data on, for example, uh, humpback whales. Fin whales are very fast. They can overtake ships. I've seen fin whales pass us by. That's really impressive because we're driving fast and they're even faster. They are pretty much restricted to offshore areas. So hmm. you can't just, you know, fly there and do a survey. They're just far off the coast. Yeah. And um, then they migrate, quote unquote, because we don't know if they really migrate, but we, right. we think they do. Mm -hmm. um, but it's reasonable to think that they do migrations similar to other species that we know of. Um, they, they move into, into an area which is very inhospitable mm -hmm. and it's very hard to conduct surveys uh, mm -hmm. in like when we go there by ship or by, um, or we do surveys from the ship using the helicopter, mm -hmm. it's like two out of seven days are feasible survey days. And that's it, because otherwise it's like raining, it's storm, it's sure. it's a very tough area to study using traditional methods. Maybe there are new methods in the mm. future that we can use and employ. That would be great. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So why are studies like the one that you conducted important? Well, one thing is, um, as it stands, there's a total population of Southern Hemisphere fin whales of... Um, let me check the number again, um, of about 5,445 individuals with a 95% confidence interval between 2,000 and 14,500. And mm -hmm. there's no better information, so to speak. 
But there have been many hints that even in smaller regions, there's more fin whales. So the, the total abundance is probably higher. Mm-hmm. And uh, coupled with the observation that um, we can see these mass feeding aggregations again, mm-hmm. uh, this leads to many like super interesting questions for mm-hmm. fin whales in particular and for the for the future of fin whales. Um, mm-hmm. So you can imagine like when you observe this this aggregation and you know there's a lot of fin whales like every year in the in the um, austral summer during the January, February, March. Um, there's a lot of animals around Elephant Island, South Georgia, maybe a bit, and, and the South Orkneys. Mm-hmm. And you can start asking yourself questions. Why are they there? Mm-hmm. Is it because they have to be there because there's little to find elsewhere? So a major proportion of that 5,000, quote-unquote, total animals have to be there Mm. to feed because they can't find anything else elsewhere? Mm. Or is it just that's one of the spots there and there's many more around the Antarctic? So, And to answer that, you need to know where they are going. Like, Mm. where do they come from? Do they all come from one spot? Like the humpback whites, they have pretty static lanes. They go from one area to another area and Usually they go back. They don't change. For example, like um, west, west, uh, the Pacific humpback whales don't go back into the Atlantic sector because it doesn't make sense for them. And so you need to know where do they go to. Like, do all fin whales from, for example, the Pacific also go to the Western Antarctic Peninsula to feed there, or is it just the Atlantic ones, like from the from the east coast of South America? Um, this is super important because um, there is going to be a, a, a very big competition for krill in the future with the advent of krill fisheries and the uh, ever-rising importance of krill fishery. Uh, ocean acidification, temperature rise, etc. benefit competitors of krill, which in turn will probably reduce the biomass of available krill. So it's very interesting to observe like how does the fluctuation in krill and how does the impact of climate change affect the fin whales? The only mm-hmm. problem is we don't know how many there are. Mm-hmm. So how can we quantify the effect? And I think that's a very pressing issue. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I it, from a lot of the scientists that I've talked to, there's not a whole lot that we know about fin whales. And obviously, you know, science is important for management and there's certain questions we can't answer. Um, what overall is the state of the fin whale? Like, are they still classified as endangered? I think the official definition is uh, unknown, but let me just check. Surprise me with that question. <laughs> because it's the Southern Hemisphere fin whale, that's also a different one. Because the IUCN, I think, doesn't list them mm. separately. Vulnerable. Vulnerable. Gotcha. Globally. Go globally. I don't want to say anything wrong. <laughs> That's okay. It's good to double check. We all have to fact yeah, check. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a yeah. lot of things that, that are on our heads. Solution threats. Yeah, it's it's vulnerable. Okay. Yeah. Um yeah, but 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 that's the point. Like you you have to know um in order to assess the status, you, you obviously are very conservative and you say, well, if you don't know, like, 
they're probably vulnerable. That's the best estimate we can get. And even if we now look towards increasing the, the, the population estimate, that doesn't change anything in terms of what affects them and yeah. what threats are there um, for, 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 for Southern Hemisphere firmware in that case. Yeah. And um, th that's probably why you need to focus on finwells as well as you do for the other species, because the finwells has always been the second place cetacean, so to speak. They're not the biggest. They're like they're not as big as as blue whales, and mm. they're the second largest animal. Sure. Um, they're the fastest, but yeah, okay. That's that's fun, but they they don't do anything fancy like humpback whales. So right. there's very little. Um, there's been little initiative to to actually work with fin whales. Also, like I said, they 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 are very hard to reach. They're offshore in the southern hemisphere, at least. Um, they they go to places which are very inhospitable and very hard to survey. So um, it is very obvious that there's a knowledge gap on fin whales in the southern hemisphere and um, this goes from population abundance estimate from from let's say hemisphere-wide abundance estimate down to the details of where they're going to where they're getting their calves where they're breeding where they're feeding where are they um, hiding where are they are they overwintering there's indication that they might overwinter some of them might overwinter in the antarctic so well in the southern ocean in the arctic obviously but um, it's it's a very cryptic species. Surprisingly, the more you the more you study and the more you read about fin whales, the more you realize that we know very little about fin whales in yeah. the southern hemisphere, at least. Well, we don't know that much about the ones up here either. The last person I had to talk about fin whales, um, she was thinking that there are you know distinct little maybe populations like there are within humpbacks or orcas or things like that, um, but very little is known. Um, Excellent. So what do you have any recommendations for things that the general public can do to help with either, you know, fin whale research and or conservation? I think one big paradigm shift uh, in the last years was um, crowd source data. Mm -hmm. And I think this is probably the easiest way for citizens to contribute to science. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of improvements and methods um, mm -hmm. on how to analyze and how to extract information from crowdsourced data. Like mm -hmm. if you see a whale, take a picture, you know, you have your mobile phone, you probably have GPS coordinates, you have a timestamp. That's usually enough for scientists to do anything they want to do with that. If you have a number of animals that are visible on the picture, perfect. It's, it's mm -hmm. brilliant. There's online platforms like Happy Whale where you can submit your pictures and your friendly local uh, scientist mm. will probably also help you like universities, institutions, they are more than happy probably to accept. And if they don't uh, store the data, they probably know someone who can make use of that data. Mm. I think that's one big, big thing that you can always do if you see wildlife, take a picture of it, you know, and uh, give it to the science, give it to science to, to do stuff with it. Mm. And um, well, another thing is just um, cetaceans are super interesting, mm. but cetaceans are like a lot of species. It's not only blue whales, not only humpback whales. 
it's fin whales, it's sei whales, it's breeders whales, it's minkies, it's a lot of animals that might not be in the limelight yet, but they are spectacular. And uh, the more you are asking for those species and for information of on those species, the better it is for us who are studying those species. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Awesome. Well, the question I always ask people at the end is what can we learn from the whales? From the whales? What can we learn from the whales? Well, one of the most impressive things um, that ever happened to me during a survey was on a Chilean fishing vessel in mm. 2016 when we are encountering this, this aggregation, this mixed aggregation of fin whales and humpback whales. Mm-hmm. And obviously everyone was very like excited to see so many whales and they were like really close to the boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were approaching us and they were feeding and they were just minding in their own business. And um, some of them were just annoyed of our presence. Uh, some of them just kept doing their thing and just realized there's a there's a ship. I'm going to go a bit further to the right so I don't collide with it. Mm-hmm. And I just keep on eating. It was impressive to see a small metal thing in the middle of such a big aggregation mm-hmm. and the the impression of just being there witnessing it and just mm-hmm. being a silent observer because at that point I realized wow we're on a different planet this is this is the southern ocean this is their domain like we're just guests we can take pictures we can uh, try to un- analyze and um, understand them and try to protect them but they just don't care. They just want to live their life. They they feed, they breed, and they just mind their own business. And that was a very humbling experience. Sure. So I guess you can learn to be humble from cetaceans because um, they don't care. They just live their life and they want to live yeah. their life. And that's, I think, that was a very interesting experience for me, at least. Very cool. That's- nice. Do you have any final thoughts for our listeners? Mm. <laughs> Final thoughts for our listeners. Just sometimes people just want to include random things. We can cut this random out too. Things. I. Yes. Well, let me think. Um, I guess one thing that I would like to get out is um, science is as open as it never was. Like there's a lot of tools that are free. There are a lot of papers that you can read online that are free science has been democratized over the last 20 years and that's not only statistical software or professional software that is now freely available Mm. uh, which has open source alternatives Mm. you can download data from repositories like gbif obis you can get species data you can take the source code that is published alongside papers modified to fit your data set you can just do it it's it doesn't require funding it doesn't require like a specific course that you need to take on university you can just go out there and experiment and i think this is something that really struck me and this is probably my biggest hope that um science is now actually available to everyone everyone can run their analyses they don't have to be employed they don't have to uh, like a specific degree in in GIS or whatever. You can just download a GIS software. You have to bite your teeth into it. You have to learn it. You have to 
look at YouTube tutorials, whatever, but you can do it and you can play around with data because that's what scientists ultimately will do. They gather data, they gather information, they play around with it. And it's never been so easy to play with data than it is today. So that would be my message. Awesome. Yeah, no, I think that that's a great message. You know, a lot of people are curious about science and, you know, there's a lot you can teach yourself, which is great because science has kind of been not the most accessible field. So that's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, it was definitely a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you for having me. Alrighty, guys, tune in next week. Um, and thank you for listening.